Glad you're tuning in to our podcast. And if you've noticed, we have new music just for you. I am stunned by the growth and the number of people who trust our podcast and the information we provide. Hope you enjoy today's. I need to tell you, coming up in today's Clark Rages moment, 200 million American adults recently had their information exposed on the web. That is a huge breach. I'm going to tell you the implications of it and what you need to know, what you might know you need to do. And later this hour, the hiring process is changing dramatically. I'm going to tell you how employers are starting to adjust to millennials and where you may be really confused about how you're supposed to do your next job interview. But first, before we get to any of that, happy birthday, Clark. Thank you. I I see a look on your face. You two are going to ambush me, huh? We might be a little mischievous. You know that about us already. It's awfully low. Is that the Beatles? It is. I'm surprised you don't you the man who doesn't know any pop culture references. I'm surprised you knew that. Well, I remember when the Beatles first came to America way before you were born, Joel. Because I'm an old guy. I'm 62 today, and so I'm eligible for Social Security. It's been nice. Goodbye. <laughs> no, it's your you, show. Go ahead. Come on. You know you you yourself. You can't take Social Security at 62. They'd be going against everything you talk about. Yeah, Social Security. I got to live to 70 to see my first Social Security check because it ain't happening until I'm 70. You know, the the math is so compelling that if you can afford to wait, you wait, and I will wait 96 more months. That's what I like to hear. See, I can measure it in months now. (laughs) Clark, happy birthday. Thank you. Can we talk about what your general manager, Krista DiBiaz, did for you? Sure. What's that? Well, she collected from everyone that cares about you here and came up with a very generous donation to one of your favorite charities. Tell everybody a little bit about it. So she came up with the idea of donating to the Prostate Cancer Foundation and did a collection. Was this among the crew and people at the studio? Yep. And came up with $2,750. Pretty cool, Which right? was fantastic for the Prostate Cancer Foundation. If you're not aware, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer a little less than nine years ago, and I have been in something that then was called watchful waiting, now called active surveillance. And I, when I did this, it was very unusual to do this that long ago. But I got uh, when I found out about the Prostate Cancer Foundation from my cousin who is also my doctor, who's a urologist, who was involved with the founding of the Prostate Cancer Foundation. He strong-armed me into getting involved with the foundation. I'm so glad he did. And I've been on the board of the foundation now for, I think, six years. And it's been a great experience because you get to see the brilliance of scientists and doctors and the things that they can do to give hope for people who prior there may not have been any hope. And the work that's going on in medical research foundations like PCF for various diseases, you see how people who would have died prior 
have a chance to live, not just from prostate cancer, but there are many illnesses that people were considered to be goners that because of breakthroughs that are happening with genetics and other areas of study, most of which end up as frustrating dead ends, but because of the brilliance of these people, the things they come up with, that people have their lives extended. And people always think of this as a, a light switch. You're either dying or you're cured. What's happening with cancers of various types is that people are learning to manage them. You don't necessarily get well or cured, but your life can be extended for a potentially a very long period of time. And that very same kind of thing that's happening with other cancers is happening with prostate cancer. And I don't know how this all happened, but the uh, are you the president, executive director? What exactly is your title? I just know you as the boss of the Prostate Cancer Foundation. First, happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, I'm the CEO and president of the Prostate Cancer and Foundation. And this is Dr. Jonathan Simons. And so you're one of those brainiacs. You were um, out of the Johns Hopkins medical system. You worked at Emory University. You ended up as head of the Prostate Cancer Foundation. And the things that go on in the research, not just with prostate cancer, but with a variety of cancers, because you're you're as an oncologist, you're aware. Give people a sense about what's happening with these cancers. Well, the progress in understanding how our genes work and the ability to make new tests that are precise and to make whole new kinds of medicines is taken prostate cancer deaths down by 52% over the last 20 years. And um, these new kinds of precision medicines for prostate cancer are impacting research for cures in 16 other cancers, including childhood brain tumors, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer. So understanding genes and then making new kinds of medicines um, is as revolutionary in cancer treatment as the internet was for um, human information, broadcasting, knowledge. It's that big. So uh, this, this genetics, mm -hmm. uh, people hear about this, but how does it actually practically affect me if I have a serious cancer diagnosis? Where does it fit in potentially to a, a course of diagnosis or treatment? It can simply change now by reading the genes um, the opportunity to get a medicine, give med the right medicine to the right patient with a cancer that's going to benefit at the right time. And in the 20th century, we gave cancer medicines and we gave you the odds. We'd say, well, this 20% chance this will give you two years. But with the genetics, with the DNA tests that go with the medicines, we can say um, 100% of the time this is going to work. Or you don't need treatment because the genes tell us we can stop treatment. Or in the case of active surveillance for prostate cancer, you have something that looks like a cancer under the microscope, but it's not going to spread. In fact, it's really more like a wart than it is like a cancer. And all that's from our ability to read the DNA, read the genes. And so uh, prostate cancer is the second most diagnosed cancer in men after skin cancer. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And you mentioned the fatality rate's down 52%. So, you know, because people know I was diagnosed with prostate cancer long ago, 
with no medical knowledge at all. People come to me and ask me about their prostate cancer. So instead of asking me, I'm going to ask you, first, with my profile and where I fit with being able to just watch what we now call actively survey my cancer, what percent of men probably who are diagnosed with prostate cancer probably would be fine doing what I've been doing these nearly nine years? Uh, 30 out of 100. It's a big number. So roughly, you got roughly a one in three chance right. that you don't need to jump into any treatment decision. That's right. And if you're in the two in three or 60%, uh, our treatments are now better and better and better with robotic surgery and very, very precise radiation. There's more than one way to cure prostate cancer. But something special about you and why your birthday is so exciting is you, by talking about it, have given a lot of men birthdays they wouldn't have had. Because you, Clark Howard, uh, along with several others in American life, really made prostate cancer something to talk about, like how women talk about breast cancer. And that really hadn't been happening because a lot of men just man up and don't want to talk about the second most common cancer in men. So it was very transformational. Well, men go into their cave when they have an illness. And women say... It was this one. It was it was the left breast. This is the one they operated on. I mean, men are so different about illness. But it, but I think we're evolving because to be there for your grandchildren, to be there uh, for your children, to be there for your family at 55, 60, 65, 70, there's so much um, value in having the men we love around. Um, I think... You and a number of others have um, taken a very male-oriented way about talking about it. Um, and the other thing is this level of awareness for, P for the uh, PSA test has been enormous because um, um, every African-American man we now know at 45, because the disease is twice as common in African-American men and twice as aggressive as in men of European descent, so if you have African descent, we know this level of awareness has saved lives simply by the test. Um, so age 45. If you're African-American, if it runs in your family at 40, if anyone in your family's had breast cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, or breast cancer, prostate cancer, an uncle, brother, grandfather, 40 is the new recommendation that now finally the government has agreed with. And, and then every man checked 50, at 50. 50 if you right. don't have family history of... Right. Name all those cancers again. That was a yeah, lot. That, yeah. So if you don't have a family history of prostate cancer or ovarian cancer or breast cancer or colon cancer, and all that's new in the last two years, you were talking about the research, but we know now about the genes that run in families. The other thing that's important is knowing your family sto cancer story is important because Families that have prostate cancer can be carrying genes that increase the risk of daughters of getting ovarian and breast cancer. Same gene, actually. So this, and this is, you were talking about how revolutionary a lot of this has been in the last few years. This is a part of the revolution. And all, those are all opportunities for the next generation not to get advanced cancer. And how close are we? Because for years I keep hearing it's just around the corner for when a man is diagnosed with prostate cancer that he'll be able to have a very simple uh, urine test or blood test which will tell genetically 
how dangerous or aggressive the prostate cancer is. Is this still around the corner or are we just about there? I think 60 months. I think, and then honestly, I think in the next five years with how cheap it, you can read these genes for less than actually fully servicing your car. It's that, it's under a hundred dollars. And so I think in the next five years, we'll see it really reduce the practice. But the important thing, meaning every doctor doing these DNA-based tests, are, it's really called precision medicine. But getting back to Clark Howardology, being a smart consumer and asking questions is important. Asking your doctor, just asking about precision medicine uh, makes it much more likely. Just the, that those two words means that the ta- these new tests can be used uh, um, with your care. And a lot of doctors- And that's not just for prostate cancer. No, that's, we're talking it's about. all forms of cancer. But prostate cancer is one of the leading cancers where this is um, moving so quickly. It just is because we've made so much research progress and the need's so great. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Jonathan Simons, for- being here on my birthday and you and I getting to talk about I can't think of a better place people. to be and um, happy birthday Clark on behalf of millions of families that have benefited from your activism and your great public voice well I'm happy to do it because I want people to be informed I want you to be in charge of your own health I don't want you to be like a sheep just going to slaughter I want you to take charge, take control, ask questions, and manage your illness. And don't just be passive and wait for somebody to tell you what to do. You be present and accounted for in your own life. Hard for us as men, learn to be your own advocate. And by the way, if you wish, you know, we've got this thing that all these people here did for me in my honor for the Prostate Cancer Foundation. If you wish to donate for a father, brother, uh, son, relative, whatever, we have a link at Clark.com where you can help fund all this research. Thank you very much, Dr. Simons. Today's Clark Rageous moment is one of those things you just got to be aware of as part of modern life. It's how much information is out there about you and me, and if somebody's careless, well, you never know what harm it might bring you. Rip-offs. Outrages. It's a Clark Regis moment. There was a contractor working for, in this case it was the Republican Party, but it could have just as easily been the Democrats, that had a database on 200 million Americans. And the database is so drilled down specific, way beyond your name, your address, your phone number, your date of birth but also all kinds of information about you and your interests and your religion, your ethnicity, deep dive data that so many organizations now have on you and me. The information ended up being exposed because it was not properly secured. To this point, there's no clear indication that the information is in the hands of people that would bring harm to us. But the reality is our information floats out there every day, everywhere. And there reaches a point where you and I may start to feel um, 
lethargic or not engaged, where we're just numb to all the ways our information could leak out in the world. And you can't shut that all down. But what you can do is be wise about how you share information that you control. One of the areas where we harm ourselves the most is on social media, where we give just flat out too much information about ourselves online to who we think are our friends, but could be our frenemies or worse. So control what you can control and be wise about what you share about your own life because you never know when that could come back and boomerang on you, and that would be absolutely Clark Rageous. We'll be right back. Glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you being empowered with knowledge so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. Clark.com slash ask is where you go to ask me a question. You also can ask questions off the air if you go to our advice section on the main page of clark.com you'll see where you can get free off the air advice nine hours each weekday from a member of our team there are changes taking place in the employment market that are extreme many places in the united states now have unemployment rates that are the lowest they've been in a generation and so employers are struggling to find the workers they need to fill a lot of jobs. But now the people they're trying to reach are heavily millennials, trying to find people in their 20s and 30s as job candidates. And so how they hire those people is going through a major shift. On the same day... It's like people at the New York Times were in the Wall Street Journal editorial meeting and people at the Wall Street Journal were in the New York Times editorial meeting. They both had stories about the ways employers try to reach millennials. So listen to this one. I don't know if this happened to you yet, but the initial job interview by text message, not even by telephone call. Because a lot of people in their 20s in particular hate talking to someone they don't know on a phone call. It just feels unnatural. But they in turn feel very comfortable having a chat or an exchange of text messages with somebody they don't know. And now there are employers using a new messaging app specifically for job interviews that is called Canvas. And so an employer is able to meet applicants where the applicants feel most comfortable with a continuing series of messages, which is more like a closed-off chat that's going back and forth. And from that, an employer determines whether or not they want to have a follow-up interview in person with an applicant. But wait, it gets more unusual. Employers are now developing their own games that are encompassed within a prospective employer's app 
that determines your skill level or ability. Here's an example. Jaguar has an app with a series of puzzles which are to determine how competent an engineer is. And so they are looking to hire thousands of engineers and what they do is an initial process is that the engineers do a series of these puzzles that are able to determine how good an engineer somebody is. Well, who knows how accurate it is, but that's what they think is the right way to do it. And I think about how employers used to do hiring at job fairs or sell themselves to potential candidates at job fairs, both for uh, colleges and then for people who are not going to colleges, and they do these job fairs. And now alternative methods to hire workers, that's all the thing in hiring at human resources departments in bigger companies, which means that if you are outside the demographic, you are going to have to adapt they're not going to adapt to you because all they're thinking about is the people in their 20s and 30s. If you're older and these methods seem unnatural to you, you're just going to have to get comfortable with them because that's how so many of the jobs are going to be filled today. And I'm with the employers. You go where your market is. And if the market for them is heavily hiring from people in their 20s and 30s, and they want alternative ways to communicate, well, you meet them the way they want to do the process so that you can attract potentially the best of the candidates. Chase is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chase. Hello, how are you? Great, thank you, Chase. You are a state employee with a question for me. Yes, um, I just recently got hired, and um, they put me in their um, pension program is what they called it, and, but I was just wondering, I'm getting ready to start school soon, and I was just wondering what other ways could I start saving now, you know, to, so that, you know, and I, I, know, I, I know I have a long time before I um, retire, but I'd like to start saving enough money now. Well, you know, that's the most important time to do it. How old are you, Chase? 20. So at 20, if you start saving money for retirement, you end up with basically the same money as somebody starting doing it at age 30. And you can, when I say same money, you can, you can do a lot less saving and still end up with the same money as somebody saving at age 30. Because the value to you of those 10 extra years of focusing on saving for the future allows your money to work for itself so much longer that you can end up doing the same as somebody starting at age 30 with potentially much more money than they have or even not save as much each pay period and end up with as much money as they would because you start so early. In other words, by you starting now, you create a path that puts you on easy street down the road. Now, but what are some options for me 
that I could... Okay, so you said this pension plan, you don't have to contribute to it at all, you just have to breathe and you participate? Yeah, yeah they, 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 the employer contributes to it. Okay, and I want to tell you that you can't rest on that at age 20, that that will be available to you for your whole career, because a lot of states are considering or already are terminating their employer pension plans or reducing them because they just can't afford what they have been doing. So saving on your own is more important, and you should think at least in your early years of employment like that pension thing from the state doesn't even exist and save money. Do you know, are you offered the option of a 401k plan with the agency you're with? So that would be the easiest thing for you to do is to participate in that 401k because money would disappear from your check before you see it. Yeah. And how much do you think is a percent of your paycheck you can afford reasonably to save every pay period? This might sound small, but maybe 5 or 10 percent. I, if you do 10%, I'm thrilled. You start off doing a dime of each dollar at age 20, and you keep that up, you'll be in fantastic shape down the road at retirement age. Mm-hmm. But my only other concern is I'm getting ready to start school, and you know I don't want you know me saving money to hinder you know me going to school, too. Well, you're going to pay for education out of your paychecks? Well, no, but I'm going to take student loans, which I don't really want to, but... How much is your education going to cost? I don't have that. I just was looking at that the other day, and I don't have it with me, but it's it's going to be a fairly large amount. Like uh, 20000 a year, 40000 a year, 10000 a year, do you have a sense? Twenty Around the 20000 range. Okay, and is this for a four-year degree or a graduate degree or? A uh, four-year degree. So we're looking at potentially you having to borrow $80,000 for that four-year degree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in that case, I'm going to go against everything I just told you before this last second, and I would encourage you to take money you would have put in a 401k with your employer is there any match for the 401k? Um, I don't. I haven't looked at the 401k. Right. I don't know. If there's a match, put in up to the match and stop there. And the rest of the money that you have free and clear from your check, use towards your education so you reduce the total amount you're going to borrow. Because on a state employee salary owing $80,000 in student loans, that is a big burden And as much as you can cut that down, Chase, I want you to do that. But the very fact you're asking these questions at 20 speaks volumes about how well you'll do over time with money, and that's exciting. Carl is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Clark. I'm calling here from Seattle. Well, great to have you here today. Yes, we call you the Clark Kent of the consumers. Wow. Okay. I would go change in a phone booth, but since those don't exist anymore, I guess I'll stay as merely Clark Kent. 
Well, I have a Tesla. I think you have one or two Teslas. I don't. I can't remember. Yeah, I drive a Tesla 70D. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a 85D. Oh, so <laughs> what that means is that for people listening, Carl, your Tesla is much faster than my Tesla. Well, a little bit faster. Yeah. But uh, my dilemma is I drive uh, about uh, 3,000 to 3,500 a month, and my uh, miles uh, are getting over 42,000. My warranty will end at 50,000, and uh, Tesla does offer a uh, extended warranty. And of course, I used to work at Sears. I used to sell mutual, more uh, uh, extended warranties for appliances. And you've always said, hey, that's something that's probably not always the best thing to do. But the Tesla is kind of unique because you just can't go to a regular mechanic to get any repairs. Right. You've got to go to them. And if something does go wrong, it's going to be very expensive to fix. That's correct. And so my, uh, I'm just trying to figure out, do I want to spend the $4,750 to extend it uh, another 50,000 miles? So I'm driving over 30000 a year. So it'll only extend a little over a year longer. So you're talking extent. about nine plus cents a mile for that coverage. Yeah. So the way you make that decision is if you had a major component break in your Tesla and you were having to repair it, there aren't that many components to break, but if one broke because you're in their closed system, it's expensive to repair. It's kind of like the Apple example. Is that money that you can afford, or would it be, I'm not talking about psychologically, I mean practically, can you afford to write the repair cost, or is it something that would be a back-breaking burden for you? Oh, I can afford it. I, I if you can afford it, then don't yeah. don't spend the $4,700. Yeah. I was just thinking, I haven't had any major service problems in the two years I've had the car. That's another reason I bought the car. And... Uh, I figured, well, I had that $4,700 sitting on the side, so if there is a fairly major problem, that forty-seven would cover that. Well, it might and, uh, not, depending on how major, but the thing is, the only time you insure something is if you can't afford the loss that would result. Okay. So if you can afford the cost of a repair, even though it wouldn't feel good to pay for it at that time you're best off just being your own insurance company. Fantastic. Because when you think about paying $0.09 a mile for coverage, that's a lot of money. And you would really have to be um, worried you're going to be snake bit with the car. And you've said the opposite, that it's worked flawlessly for you. And since you can afford to take the risk, take the risk. Sheila's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Sheila. How are you doing today? Fine, sir. How are you? Great. Thank you. You're looking for something to get for your dad. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for what you do to help us consumers, and also thank you for your service. Well, you are so kind. I'm, I'm happy to do what I do every day as we all learn together. And this, this is my question. My dad stays um, in a rural part of a county in North Carolina, and the only TV service that we have is either old school antenna or um, 
satellite, direct satellite, or satellite through the Internet. And I had heard that there were some options out there that possibly could, we could, he could see a regular TV program without having to do all of that. Is that correct? That is not really correct. Unless oh. he has, if he lives in a rural part of North Carolina where access to a strong Internet connection is not available, because is that what I gather is he can't contact that, a cable that company? Is, he, I mean, the Internet is there, but it's not the best quality. Okay. And we didn't want to have to do the whole satellite dish strike TV thing if we didn't have to. Sure. And the reality is, is that often in rural areas, the Dish Network Direct TV thing has actually been your friend because it's given oh. it's given the possibility of having, you know, a lot of programming at not a huge cost if you do it to just like a single TV or whatever. I don't know. What do you consider to be a reasonable cost? Well, um, honestly, sir, I honestly couldn't tell you because we haven't really looked into it. When I looked at the websites for the Dish and the Direct, you know, they have the different packages, and there's only so many TV stations that he's going to watch anyway. Right. So, so the basic for- the basic with Dish is forty nine ninety nine a month. Oh, okay. And that will get him uh, quite a bit of programming potentially. And the price is, what's different now is the price is guaranteed for two years, which it didn't used to be. You'd have to sign a two-year contract, but you'd only get the good price for the first year. Oh, okay. So if he's in a rural area, the internet is iffy, not very fast. I think doing the Dish Network at 50 a month is a deal. Now, yes, sir. If he lives in an area served by AT&T for Internet, do you know if he is? No, it's CenturyLink. Okay. So in that case, he would be best served by the Dish Network deal, and he's stuck with it in a two-year contract. But I think that it will be something that he'll be very happy with at $50 a month because of the wide depth of programming that he'll get. Clark Howard here, and welcome to the Empowerment Zone, where you learn ideas to protect your wallet each and every day. Clark.com is our web address. When you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. And when you get to Clark.com, if you don't want to ask me a question, but you want an answer to your question, you can talk with a member of our team for free. We do that nine hours every weekday. On the main screen of Clark.com, you can scroll down and see where to get help. Click there, and you'll have all the info on getting free off-the-air advice. Coming up in a half hour, we got to talk about how prevention is the best medicine. There are people who are buying more car than your wallet can afford right now, and the consequences from that are starting to be really bad ugly. I know that's probably terrible grammar. I don't care. It makes the point really well. And I'll lay the cards out on the table a half hour from now why you need to avoid temptation biting off more monthly car payment than you can chew. So I'm going to talk right now about how we as Americans 
have stuff. I mean, we have stuff. People other places in the world just marvel at this massive industry we have of self-storage facilities because we have more than we can handle in terms of possessions. We just buy and we buy and we buy and then we don't have a place to put it so we go and rent a storage place. Well, now there are inventive souls that have set up businesses to make all that easier for you at a serious cost. Heavy in California and a few other places, you can now hire a company to come and get your stuff that you've run out of room for, digitally photograph it and create a digital uh, catalog for you of your items, take them and put them in a storage facility, and then when you decide you want something, you let them know and they bring that item to you or items to you. And these services are not cheap. One that's very heavy in California, they're also in Chicago and New York, is one called Clutter. And there's another one that, uh, what is about Chicago and New York? Make Space is also in Chicago and New York, as well as Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. And these things will, if they work well in the cities they start in, they, what happens is they spread over time to other population centers. But I think about that we're at a point that it's becoming normalized that people need expansion space for the things that they own but can't find a use for currently in their lives. I get it if you move to temporary housing or something like that, but a lot of times it's just a permanent function in people's lives that we have more stuff than we can use. I remember in my TV work profiling a family that had allowed excess merchandise to take over their entire garage, two-car garage in their house, and then they had count not one but two rental units to store the stuff that they had that they didn't use that couldn't fit in the garage anymore and couldn't fit in the first storage unit so then they had to get the second storage unit. I mean I would say a better idea than having to hire a company to come inventory your stuff and cart it off for you and then pay rent on it at another place is maybe you consider selling stuff off that you have or giving stuff away that you have that you don't use. With clothing, my wife has a rule with clothing that if she gets a new-to-her item, which may well have been purchased from a used clothing store, but when she gets a new item, she also at the same time either sells or gives away a clothing item that she doesn't wear so that the space requirement is always the same. She gets something new, something else is purged. And so if I'm speaking to you, if you have more stuff than you can possibly figure out what to do with it, 
The answer is not to go rent square footage somewhere, but instead to figure out, is it time for you to have a yard sale? Is it time for you to sell things on one of the neighborhood Facebook pages? Or would you like to give away to some charity that you really care about? Or to a family you know that needs that item really badly that for you, it's just surplus? Think about it. Son is with us on the Clark Howard Show. How are you doing today? Hi, Clark. Hi. Uh, I'm a little nervous. I never thought I would call in to talk to you. Well, I'm glad to have you here, and don't be nervous at all. It's just you and me having a chat over the fence. Okay. Um, my situation is I, I was in a foreign relationship where uh, the person I was with had a huge spending problem, so I did take on uh, some debt. And now that, um, you know, uh, I'm back on my feet, I have to pretty much rebuild like, my savings, my 401k, and paying off uh, credit card debt. So I was wondering when it so comes you to ended that, up, So you ended up absorbing the debt from this bad relationship on your credit cards? Uh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and I emptied my, you know, savings and all that as well. And, and you know, it's... It's my own doing. I kind of allowed it to happen. Well, I did allow it to happen. So Okay, okay. Now, wait, wait, wait. When you're in a relationship with somebody who's abusive or takes advantage, don't blame yourself. Okay. Th- don't thanks, blame sorry. yourself. Because there are times we do things out of love that on reflection, we're like, how did I allow myself to be taken advantage of by that person? But... People, you know, love is blind, and please don't don't feel internally that you did something wrong. You did nothing wrong. The other individual who took advantage is the person who did something wrong. Okay. Thank you. So please give yourself that peace that, that uh, if you're feeling guilt, the only guilt should be felt by the person who took advantage. Okay, thank you for that, Clark. I do appreciate that. So now you're rebuilding, and yes, how much credit card debt are you facing? It's a total of around 26000 across three you know, major credit cards. There were store cards, but I paid those off already. So I'm just wondering, uh, you know, how do you want me to go about that? So 26000 Can I ask what kind of annual income you have? Uh, yeah, sure. My annual income, I had to take a job that was a lot less pay, but right now it's around 42000 Okay. I got I to gotta lay it out straight to you. Having $26,000 in credit card debt against forty two in income is very, very difficult to conquer. Okay. And um, I will say that, um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you Oh, off. go ahead. You did mean I, I am currently staying with a relative that's pretty much allowing me to stay rent-free. I wasn't sure if that factors in. That factors in huge, because it means the money you would have spent, uh, let's say 1000 a month, you would have been spending on rent, can go straight towards the credit cards. Yes, sir. So I'm very blessed in that aspect. They're helping me get back on my feet. That so. changes everything. If that relative out of kindness and love for you is allowing you to stay and as you rebuild your finances then you just 
tackle this straight on with um, how much can you you think afford to pay towards the credit cards each month, knowing you're not paying rent? Oh, I haven't done the math, but basically I've been paying about uh, um, on average around maybe 700 each month Okay, altogether. That's fantastic because that's enough money that you're going to make a big dent in this debt. You think about that, that's probably a four-year payment cycle. You take it to zero credit card debt. Okay. You step it up to 1000 a month, you're talking a three-year cycle. Yes, sir. And so what you do is you pay um, the minimum on the two lower interest rate cards each month, and then the rest of that $700 goes towards the one with the highest interest rate. Yes, sir. And you just keep that up, and what will happen is in just a few months, you'll see that more and more of each dollar you pay is going towards the principal instead of towards interest. Okay. okay that, that sounds great. Uh, as far as, like, parties, should it be credit card over my, like, emergency fund and my 401k? I uh, hate to say this, but other than putting into your 401k enough to pick up an employer match, yes, sir. everything else should go towards paying down the credit card debt. Okay. That, that, that makes uh, perfect sense to me. Thank, thank you. I do appreciate uh, that uh, your your help and please, um, I know you're you feel the guilt we talked about earlier. I ask you from this moment forward, give yourself the permission to excise that guilt from your heart and your head. Uh, thank you, Clark, so much for that advice, uh, personal and financial. And I do appreciate everything that you have done and your team does as well. Well, thank you, and and call in a year from now for a checkup. Let's talk about where you are, how you're doing with it. David's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, David. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you're at. That's right. It could be anywhere. It's like good morning, (laughs) Vietnam. It could be any time zone right now. David, you are doing something that I am green with envy with. You are buying a home in Hawaii. That is that is correct. Uh, my wife and I are getting ready to purchase a vacation rental, and that we either plan on moving in in about the next ten or fifteen years after it's paid off to either uh, retire in Maui um, or buy something else and keep that um, as a vacation rental as a extra income. Well, that sounds fantastic. Are you relying upon an economic model, though? where you would uh, pay for it through Airbnb or VRBO? Yeah, well, yes, we would, um, because we're still working extreme amount of, uh, you know, full-time plus some, um, we would have a management uh, company um, handling that. The property you're looking at, is it inside a resort community? Is it a condo? What's the nature of the property? Um, it It is a condo. Um, we've been looking at a couple, uh, couple different ones. Um, we kind of know what maintenance fees are. We know, um, pretty much done our homework. We know what revenue we'll probably get out of that each month and each year. Um, I got and- something I want you to do before you, uh, you already closed on this or you've identified the property? Oh, no, 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 no. All right. Not even close. When you're, when you identify a condo you're thinking of, find out who the president is of the condo board. 
and call him or her and find out if you have to worry at all that they might impose restrictions on you doing rentals of your property. Okay. There are so many fights going on right now in the Hawaiian Islands where condominium boards and associations are banning short-term rentals. Okay. And you don't want to be in a position where you're intending to live in the property 10 years from now and you find out two years in that, oops, we're not allowed to rent it anymore. And then it becomes a financial albatross instead of what you mean it to be, which is building your future and letting current tenants pay the way for you. Okay. No, perfect. I, I jotted that down. Thank you very much for that. And But what did you want to ask me? Because it wasn't about that. No, no, that's okay. I appreciate that. Um, well, um, I kind of wanted to know, I know, I know of a couple people that already do this. Um, what, do, should I have this under an LLC or should I just consider this as uh, income? Uh, I know well, I even if it's students. an LLC, the purpose of doing an LLC on a rental property is to protect you principally from liability of somebody getting hurt at your property or alleging they got hurt or something bad happened at your property and them going after your assets personally. Mm-hmm. Are you going to have a mortgage on this vacation property? Yeah, we, we plan on doing a 10-year uh, uh, loan if possible. You get an extremely low interest rate, even being an investor property. What I suggest in that case is that you look at buying a significant umbrella insurance policy rather than potentially doing an LLC, since you are going to have a mortgage on the property. And what what the umbrella does is it protects you from liability in every phase of your life, not just with this property. When you have a single property as an investment property, the LLC is probably more work and more hassle than is necessary. Having the umbrella liability is a great benefit. And go to whoever writes your homeowners or auto and get a quote from them for doing an umbrella policy. And have fun in Maui. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where producer Joel asks a question you posted for me at Clark.com. What you got? Clark Al wants to know, what are the pros and cons of getting a reverse mortgage? Well, reverse mortgage is where instead of you writing a check to the mortgage lender each month, they write you a check in the simplest version. The pro is that if you're tapped out, you're house rich but cash poor, you have no other resources to draw on, you're not worried about your kids inheriting the value of your house, it allows you to remain in your house longer and your house to fund a portion of your retirement. The bad side of reverse mortgages is the fees on them are in many cases extreme and you limit your options in that you eliminate the ability for loved ones to inherit. But the big thing is that any reverse mortgage that's legit, you'll have to go through financial counseling first to make sure it's the right choice for you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. 
Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Thanks for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so that you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our web address. Clarkdeals.com is where you go to save money. I've got to tell you something that we got to talk through really clearly. There are so many people right now that are buying cars that your finances just cannot handle. The lending standards for car loans have gone way down, and we're almost at a point that if you can breathe, someone will make you a car loan, and they'll make you a loan that's very dangerous. And the loan they might make you could be for seven, even eight years on a vehicle, new or used. The problem is, is that if you take out a long loan, you're going to be paying a lot of interest, and you're always going to be owing more than what your vehicle's worth. And so what's happening, one follows the other, there's now a big spike in delinquencies on car loans as the credit score required has gone down, the loan terms have been loosened, and the length of the loans gone way longer. People are finding themselves in over their heads and having the vehicles repossessed. So what happens next is so far from not pretty way ugly, horrifically ugly, doesn't even encompass it. Okay, so you got to follow this because it's terrible. When a car is repossessed from you, the lender routinely will seek what's known as a deficiency judgment against you, which is something they can do in almost every state. I think there's maybe three or four states they can't do deficiency. And what that means is that the lender gets a judgment from the court where you have to pay everything you are already contractually required to pay pretty much plus extras for the expenses the lender went through, repoing the car, selling the car, the cost for the lawyer to come after you for the deficiency judgment, on and on and on. So what's very common is that when the car gets repossessed, you won't have the vehicle to drive anymore, but you will end up paying for that car for more money than what it would have cost if you were still driving the car, paying the loan as agreed. Now, normally what would happen if somebody got in over their heads with a car is you would just sell it because you wouldn't owe more on it than what it was worth. 
But today, because of the long loans, it is common that people owe thousands more on a car than what the value of the car is at that point when they lose their job or get sick or whatever. And so you can't sell it. And then the whole ugly thing happens with the repo, the deficiency judgment, and then a bill that follows you pretty much forever. And the only alternative under the law in most states is to then file a bankruptcy filing to set aside the deficiency judgment. That is a terrible, terrible cycle. And I need for you to know that today, if you go to a car dealer, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And then they're likely going to be able to write that loan with somebody who will write it even though they know the risk level with you is very high. And they'll do it because they know they're just going to come eat you up if you can't pay. So remember, just because they say you can have the loan doesn't mean you want the loan. Only buy a vehicle that either you can buy a junk car, a beater car, whatever, one that you can pay cash for that you know you own and it's yours. Or if you decide to buy a car that's going to require financing, that the cost of that loan per month is something you know you'll be able to handle through thick and thin. But what you don't want is you don't want that repossession because, let me tell you, that's a bad, sad story. Bob is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Bob? Hey, how are you doing, Clark? Great. How does it feel to be at one of the days of the year where it will never get truly dark? Oh, it's kind of old hat to me. I'm pretty used to it up here. I, I do love the uh, summers in Alaska. So you, how many years have you been in Alaska? Oh, about 20. So 20 years, you've got the time of year where it's at least twilight around the clock, and then you've got the time of year where twilight's the best you get all day. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the story. So how do you put up with the uh, time of year that twilight's the best you get? Well, I have family that lives in Washington, and they may get more daylight from sunup to sundown, but it's constantly gray. In the winters when we're out, uh, when the sun sets early, uh, generally it's bright out all day. So, especially on those cold days. I mean, the, the sun is just out. You, you might not get a lot of sunlight, but it is bright. I remember once being in Alaska in early June, and we were fishing at 1.30 in the morning. Don't worry, I caught nothing. And it was bright like it was not quite midday, but more like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, we tend to enjoy our summers up here. So how can I be of service to you? Well, I have a Verizon cell phone service, and I've been you know, an avid listener. 
And I was trying to switch over to the Total Wireless, which is, uh, I believe, Verizon's discount service provider. And um, I went online and filled in the application, and they said they do not provide service in my area. You were you were in the only of the 50 states, as best I know, that Total Wireless does not offer pretty much wall-to-wall coverage. Mm. Now, there are people in eastern Montana that should not sign up for Total Wireless, and people in, um, I guess, parts of Nevada that are very rural, and that's pretty much it in the lower 48. Total coverage in the Hawaiian Islands, the only people that Total Wireless Verizon's discount brand kicks to the curb are people in Alaska. So let me (laughs) tell you how you might save money. Let me tell you how you might save money on Verizon in Alaska. And that is, instead of being with Verizon Mainline, Verizon offers not as cheap as you'll have a total wireless, but they offer a cheaper service with Verizon prepaid. Okay. And I don't know if you've ever looked at Verizon prepaid. I have not. But they offer Verizon prepaid for a lower cost than regular Verizon because Verizon prepaid is geared towards a more price-sensitive customer. And so it's $40 a month, I think is what it is, for their basic plan for Verizon prepaid. Well, I'll definitely have to look into that and do some comparison shopping. And it's it's something that people have have been generally happy with, and it was, I think, a more popular product till Total Wireless came along. And for people in the other 49 states, Total Wireless is the way to get Verizon's network at a very cheap price, except for you. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm sorry about that. Well, that's all right. And hey, thanks for your time. Uh, again, I'm a big fan, and uh, very nice talking to you. Well, I appreciate it, and you enjoy the midnight sunshine. Nate is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Nate. Hello. Nate, you have one of those dilemmas that's a good dilemma. <laughs> Thank you. What are you thinking? Um, well... So um, right now, my wife and I can afford to put away $300 a month um, towards the replacement of a vehicle, or we could um, potentially finance a vehicle. And I've been listening to you talking lately about the great opportunities that exist currently with the used car market, where, um, where uh, prices have significantly uh, dropped. And so what I'm trying to figure out is, um, you know, we have to replace the car in the next uh, two or three years, said the mechanic that, uh, that that we trust. And so the question is, should we, um, you know, sack away the 300 bucks a month and um, and then buy the car, um, you know, when it's when when we put that car uh, in its uh, out the pasture, or um, do we finance something now and capture the uh, the immediate low prices? What a great question. 
So how old is the car you have that's got a couple of years maybe of life left to it? Um, like 17 years old. Oh, go ahead and get a new car. You're okay. not somebody who's looking for an excuse to prematurely would uh, you know retire a car so you can get something shiny new. And you are specifically interested in a car, not a SUV or something? Correct. Yeah, so the car market for a number of factors is so weak right now. In fact, the automakers are planning this summer to send workers on extremely long vacations that work in passenger car plants because they just don't need their cars. General Motors right now which is uh, Chevy, Buick, GMC, um, what else do they own? Cadillac. They are so overstocked with passenger cars that they have what's known as a theoretical 102-day supply of cars, meaning that they could stop making cars for three and a half months before they'd even begin to run out of cars. That's how oversupplied they are. And then the used car market is overwhelmed with product because of people turning in cars from three-year leases and the market shifted from being 60% cars, 40% light truck, to 40% car, 60% light truck. So everything was set up to build a lot more cars than, than SUVs and CUVs and pickup trucks and all that. So you are so in the catbird seat right now. I could have said driver's seat, but that would be really bad and a terrible pun. <laughs> so do you think you'd buy 17 years, you've earned the right to buy new, used, whatever you want. What are you thinking? Well, I mean, um, a used vehicle is better, so we have the uh, so we don't take that uh, initial depreciation hit. And then, um, you know, just uh, a passenger car would, uh, would do. I was thinking something along the lines like a, like a 2013 or something. And what brands are you most interested in? Uh, Toyota, Honda. They have. Uh, they seem to have really good reliability. I have a. I have a Toyota also. That's uh, that's been treating me really well for the past five years, and um, you know, it seems and, like maintenance is always really cheap on it. And here's something you may find that is surprising coming out of my mouth. But you may find that the best deals are going to be on the Lexus and the Acura in terms of was-is versus what the prices were new three years ago versus what the passenger cars from Lexus and Acura will go for now with this oversupply of used vehicles coming back from leases because the luxury brands rely on leases more than the traditional brands like Toyota and Honda. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in in I would say look at all four labels and okay. see what's going to be the best deal for you buying used. But this is normally summer is a time that you pay more for vehicles. This summer, if you're interested in a passenger car, new or used. This is bargain season galore. Sharon's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Clark. I got to thank you because I've been listening to you for years, and your advice has helped me 
retire early. I'm a pre-retiree, which means that I get a pension and I'm working a fun job right now. So I appreciate that. Wow. So you're (laughs) both getting a pension and you're working. Yeah, a little fun job, part-time job during the week that I always wanted to do. But um, That's my great. Question, <laughs> my question, the other day I was driving down in my neighborhood and I noticed one uh, gas station that had a price. And I went around the corner and there was another gas station that had a price that was four cents more, which they had a lot of customers at both of them. So that was pretty you know, amazing to me. But I kind of wondered, which is worth it? What's the limit when you want to look for a gas station that's cheaper gas? I mean, should I spend 15 minutes looking for someplace that may be 10, 10 cents cheaper? No. The other- okay, so, okay, so the cost of you driving a mile okay. in your car on average is about 60 cents. Six wow. Zero. So okay. if you go two miles out of the way, because another gas station is a nickel cheaper a gallon, you're going to have to buy a lot of gallons before you're even, 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 even. You'd have to buy 24 gallons to be even in that example. So what I do is if I'm in a gas engine car, which knock on wood very rarely happens in my life, usually when it's a rental car or something, because I don't know if you know, I drive an electric car. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about that gasoline stuff most of the time. But my rule is that when my fuel tank hits half, I start paying attention to what prices are for gasoline. And when I see a deal on the path of wherever I'm going, I pull in and fill up. So I never find myself in the position where I'm on like the last legs of the tank and that uh, fill up now light pops up on the dash. And then I'm looking for gas. And then you have that tough choice. Do I pull in here that's really expensive or do I drive a couple more miles away to get a cheaper price? If you simply fill up through your routine rather than as a trip, you'll avoid having to even worry about, should I pull in this station or the one half mile away? You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. I appreciate you spending part of your day with us here on The Clark Howard Show. I want you to know that if you need consumer advice, we're here to serve you off-air for free, nine hours a day. If you go to Clark.com and go down the home screen, you'll see a section, Consumer Help and Tools. Click on Consumer Action Center, and you can get that free off-the-air advice.